think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. It's Tuesday. You know what that means. It means you survived Monday which should be secondary to enjoying this Worldview podcast, teaching you how to think. Right, okay. <laughs> that may be what we're endeavoring to doing. Hopefully we are accomplishing it as we go. Let's see. I got microphone, I got Bible stuff, I got checklist. We are good to go, so let's dive in. Hi, guys. Michael's back again. And I've come to you to tell you that law is law, even if you think it isn't. It's one of the beauties of the law. It's like the Backstreet Boys. They don't care who you are, and they don't care where you're from, just as long as you love it. So maybe it's McDonald's at the same time. They're, uh, they're loving it or something. Now, <clears throat> the whole goal of this series is we're going through the Bible, trying to make sense of it from a worldview perspective. Again, one of the great uh, – I don't know if laments is the right word or not, but you know what? We're going to use it. One of the great laments that I have had in my years in ministry, which – they're becoming longer years, or at least there's there's more to them. There's more of them, rather. One of my laments, though, has been the lack of Christians thinking Christianly about their lives, thinking with a biblical framework or ideal. They, um, I say they like I'm not part of the group. We, as a whole, do a very terrible job of bringing our worldview to bear on the things of this world. We do a great job of getting involved in various causes as long as we don't have to bring any Christian principles to bear on that ideal. Then we do phenomenal work, and it's, I mean, it's some of the best things that we accomplish, you know, year in, year out, day in and day out, however you want to look at it. It's still, still fidgeting with sound system stuff as I go, so let's see if that is going to help a little. Oh. Probably help a lot more when I don't um, smack the microphone. Sorry there, guys. See what happens when you try to make adjustments as you go? Excuse me. So, anyway, as I was saying, one of the great complaints is that people don't do, and by people, I mean Christians don't do an awesome job of thinking through the things of this world from a Christian perspective. So, rather than sit and complain about it, Just try to do something about it and actually bring some Christian principles to bear. That's what we're trying to do. So if you haven't listened, or you're new because one of your friends thinks I'm worth listening to and told you to listen to this, go back through and listen to the earlier episodes because that lays our foundation that we are now building upon and working through. So that means we've finished Exodus and we are on Leviticus. So your warning for the day, we are going to fly through Leviticus like we are double parked and try to get this whole book done in one day simply because, well, I I think we can. I keep fidgeting with this microphone because what I keep doing is not working. I've got to be able to look at this microphone, have a screen guard up so I don't keep, you know, boom, and have it spike in the system while being able to actually look at stuff in front of me. It's not a good setup, and it's just not working. So you know what? I'm going to abandon it because it's in my face, and I don't like it. So let me move this out of my way. There we go. Move that out of the way, and we're just going to have to go with it and hope we make sense of this as we go. So if it blows up on me later, I apologize. So Leviticus. What do you get out of Leviticus, as the great Dr. John Salehammer once said, who was 
professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Southeastern Seminary at the same time I was. What do you get out of Leviticus? You get out of it as fast as you can. That wasn't me. That was a Bible guy who actually wrote books on Genesis and the Pentateuch. But, you know, the point still stands for too many Christians, unfortunately. We do a great job of running like our tails are on fire to get out of the law of God. And the main reason we do that is because we do not think through the law biblically, which for the modern America, or not a modern American, for the modern believer is to think through it Christianly. Meaning, we should think through this in the order in which it is presented. We should see it for where it is and what it is. A codex, a canon given to the people of God so that they may dwell with God. Remember, that is what is going on here. What does that mean? If you are a Christian seeking to live for God so you may dwell with God, and you had to give that a big fancy theological term, what big fancy theological term would you use? I would hope that your answer would be sanctification. The law for the believer, Israel is supposed to be full of believers, people trusting in Yahweh, being redeemed and having been delivered by him. They are supposed to be a nation of priests, a nation of believers. For that believer and for those believers, the law is supposed to be a means of sanctification. It curbs and guides your life as you try to live in a godly manner. Now, the beauty of this for Israel, because Israel is, I would argue, a mixed multitude in and of themselves. You have believers and unbelievers within that ethnic nation of Israel. Because that is, the, the, uh, because that is true of them, the law serves a secondary function. It crushes the soul of those who seek and wish to keep it apart from a love for and devotion to God. The same is true today, which means... How do we handle this, though? We can't just take this moving forward. I mean, we don't have... Like, the first five chapters of Leviticus are all offerings. So it's the law of the, the burnt offering, the law of the grain offerings, law of the peace offerings, law of the sin offerings, law of the guilt offerings. And you're going, I don't understand. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't know. How do, how do I keep these offerings as a Christian? The answer is you, you don't. You read them and understand that this is what Christ is fulfilling within you. I mean, think through, think through your Advent for, for a minute. We've got peace, and we've got sin, and we've got guilt. All of that is taken away. What is, what is your Advent calendar? Excuse me, your Sundays of Advent. We have the hope. The hope of what? The hope of a redemption. So that we have what? Peace. Because God has demonstrated love. And that brings about our joy. So in other words, these offerings are meant to point to a work that is fulfilled, not in the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews would tell you, but in the blood of the precious lamb that is Christ. So as you read through these offerings, don't read the, all right, take notes, kids, because we've got to build an altar in our backyard and get the grain offering so that we may burn it properly. That's not the point. The point is to the, to the point is to point you to an ultimate fulfillment in, rec in a recognition that, look, if you're offering these offerings in Israel because you're trying to be faithful to what God has commanded, you're busy. You're very busy. You're going to the tabernacle. You're worshiping God. You're praising him. Your entire life is being reoriented around what? Around God. 
around his worship and the understanding of the redemptive work that he's accomplished for you. Christian, nothing's changed. Again, think through some of the foundations we've laid down. That the creator God means we are dependent upon him. He is the one who preserves us. Why do we give our grain offering? Because it's a reminder that this produce that we're living off of from Israel is a gift of God for our preservation, that he has not forgotten us. He is savior and judge. Therefore, we have a guilt and a sin offering because we are guilty before our judge and we have been given a means by his grace by which we are redeemed, in which we are cleansed. Therefore, I do not fear his judgment because I am walking in his salvation. He is faithful. As long as we are his people walking in his ways, Israel, we will not be forsaken. Christian, as long as you are his child and the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are not forsaken. He is long-suffering down through the ages. Israel walking away. There is a faithful remnant in Israel, typically. I mean, you'll see this when you get to the kingdom years. We'll see this in the time of Elijah, and Paul quotes this in Romans, that there's not vast swaths of Israel walking faithfully. It's a, it's a small remnant, and God is persevering and long-suffering with Israel because he is redeeming that, that remnant in the face of and in the midst of the judgment that is poured out on the unbelievers. Christian. This is how we walk in the world. And God will accomplish this and God will sanctify us. So, when you read through these offerings, read them in light of the picture that is being shown. That this Moses guy from Exodus, who is a deliverer for Israel, but who is ultimately going to fall short in being able to cleanse them of their sin, to rid them of the effects of Egypt and the stains of this world. He is the prophet, but he is unable to deliver the final word from God. He is the mediator, but he is unable to perfectly stand before God as he himself falls away before entering into the land. So all of these things are meant to point you to something else. So, so read these laws, but read them with a, with a recognition that there is something else coming. And you'll see that as you work through Leviticus. So you get to chapter 6, and what do you get? You get the offerings beginning, and you see the priesthood now. So you get chapter 6. We've got laws laid out for who the priests are, what they wear, how they make their offerings, what they are to do. It is precise. They're consecrated in chapter 8. Now, why all this detail? Because worship of God is according to whose terms? God's. Remember, he is the creator and we are the dependent being. Therefore, we don't worship in what way we see fit. We worship in the way that he sees fit. If you'd like an example of this going backwards, go look at Cain and Abel. Abel rightly offers the, pro the, the proper offering for sin. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. They're offering sin offerings. It's supposed to be the animal. Cain doesn't want to do that. Cain wants to offer the first fruits. Look, it's, it's a wonderful offering for the first fruits offering, but it is not a wonderful offering for the sin offering that is being rejected. Therefore, Cain and his offering are rejected. Always remember that order. It's not the offering in Cain. It is Cain who is rejected and his offering with him, not the other way around. You can see this. What? Cain is worshiping wrongly. Yahweh is under no obligation to accept false worship. As a matter of fact, because he is the Savior and the Judge, he is under obligation to reject and bring wrath upon false worship. 
This is why how and why the way we worship matters in church. Christian, if you're in a church and you haven't considered how you worship, stop and think about it. I'm, I'm serious. I mean, hopefully the leadership of your church has done this, but they have you to ask, hey, why, why do we do this? Why do we do that? Hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Ask these questions because there is a theology of worship that should be present in every church. Your leadership, the people conducting worship, should be able to tell you, well, this is why we sing this song. This is why we don't sing that song. This is why we pray here. This is why we don't pray that. These things are part of a thought-out theology. That's I mean, We used to call it a liturgy, but we don't do that anymore because that's just too, that's too restrictive. And we want to be free. Free, I say. Liturgy isn't evil. Idolatry of liturgy is evil, but liturgy in itself is not evil. Having a well-thought-out answer and a system by which you can run worship elements through a grid and say, this is good, this is kept, this is bad, this is rejected, is God-honoring. It should be God-honoring in your life. Again, Christian, how you think through your worship is an exercise in how you think through things as Christians. Case in point, you want a forward-looking example, chapter 9. Came about on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf, a bull for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. And Aaron does so. Chapter 9 is Aaron offering this right offering for the sin of the people. This is a cleansing offering. This is how you're supposed to be worshiping rightly. Chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. <coughs> Nadab and Abihu have not walked in this lesson. They have offered a false worship. They have offered a lesser thing to the holy God. And they have been reminded, as has Aaron and Moses and the entire assembly of the people, they have been reminded that what? They are dependent upon God and not the other way around. Now, this is important. Because in every other man-made religion, which I should just say every man-made religion or every other religion other than biblical religion, you are worshiping the deity for your benefit. Your benefit. I go sleep with the pagan prostitutes of Baal so that we can have engage in the fertility rites so that the crops will grow. We offer our children so that the God will be appeased by the blood and therefore he will send us the rains and give our cattle fertility or whatever it is that they offer. Mostly fertility. You'll notice this a lot. It's a lot of fertility rites. I think that's because people like to worship in that manner, if you understand what I'm saying, because a lot of fertility worship elements are, hmm, scandalous might be a good way to put that. <clears throat> and a lot of them are just physically fun to engage in for people. So we seem to like that false worship, but it's all about what? Rains and crops and herds and flocks being blessed by the deity so that we don't die. Biblical worship is a reminder of who you are, not a benefit to you. Yahweh doesn't crush Israel because they have given the right offering. 
the long-suffering Savior of his people, does not crush them because he is gracious and merciful. And he has given them a means by which they are reminded that a sacrifice, a wrong has been done before God, and it must be righted in order for justice to be done. It is not about blessing the people. It is about understanding their relationship before God and how they live in this world. There's a difference there. Now, are there ancillary benefits that we are forgiven, we are redeemed, we don't pay the wrath? Yes, 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 yes. But the primary is not focused on us as if we are the deity. But it is focused upon God because he is the deity and we are dependent upon him. So, Nadab and Abihu are judged, and now we start getting into the fun stuff. So you get laws about the animals, what's clean, what's unclean in chapter 11. You get what do you do for motherhood so that after you've had these lovely discharges that go along with birthing a child, how are you clean again? When are you clean again? And all that good stuff. You get chapter 13, the test for leprosy, which is just – don't read this section of Leviticus if you're planning on eating like this week. Hey, some of this stuff is just funkiness. Uh, cleansing of lepers in chapter 14, the – Discharges of the skin and body. How about that? We'll put that politely for chapter 15. What is this all about? A purity of the people, both inside and outside. Why? Well, is there a practical benefit? Yes. You want people to be clean because clean people die less. That's 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 an obvious thing. We understand that, or at least I hope we understand that, that you know, throughout human history, the, any chance humanity has a chance to get cleaner, we typically take it because we recognize it makes us feel better because we are better. So part of this is that, that Israel is being cleansed, cleaned, literally, physically. But they're also being reminded that the stains of sin in the world are not just spiritual, but they're physical. That there is a brokenness to humanity that must be undone. And who is the undoer? It is not them. It is God himself. Yahweh is the undoer of their problems. Yahweh is the undoer of their bads. Therefore, they must trust and walk in him and not in something else. Hence the reason you get this detail here. Yes, it has a practical effect of keeping the community alive, but it also has the effect of reminding them that all of life is supposed to be oriented towards who God is and how we worship him. Your children are not about you. They're about God. Your skin diseases and judgment are not about you. They're about God. Your cleaning, your atoning is not about you. It's about God. There's your segue because chapter 16 and 17 is your atonement, the actual offering of the lamb, the offering of blood, the atonement, the annual pilgrimage of the priest into the holy of holies to make offering on behalf of the people. It is a reverent and holy occasion. Why? Because everything else about their lives has led up to this. Once again, Christian, nothing's changed. Why should we have a good and robust theology of worship? Because we have gathered together as the people of God in community to worship the one who has redeemed us by the Spirit by the spilling of his own blood and the giving of his life as sacrifice on our behalf. That's kind of a big deal. That's what we're commemorating when we go to worship. Nothing else. We're commemorating that. That should be a holy day. Our entire lives should be lived in preparation and leading up to that day. Welcome to the picture being painted for you in the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. 
Israel's entire existence summarized in leading up to this annual celebration, this annual offering so that they are redeemed. Again, pointing to what? The lamb. Yes, there's other lambs, there's other sacrifices, there's other offerings, but there is this, the offering, pointing again to who is the offering when you get to the New Testament and the work of Christ. Again, a celebration, an understanding of what God is doing. Now, in light of that, a redeemed and cleansed people should do what with their lives? They should live like they are a redeemed and cleansed people. Therefore, you get what? You get laws on how you relate to one another. Speak to the sons of Israel, chapter 18. I am the Lord your God, and you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am Yahweh. It's a reminder that you are not like them. You have been redeemed, bought by the precious work of God, set aside as his people. Therefore, you don't live in the wallowing of sin. That's why you get the marriage relationships and the, and the things that you get there. That's why you get the understandings of how you handle your crops and the, the lack of marking. So you want the tattoo one. Is it chapter 19? I should have marked it. I didn't, and I apologize. Isn't it in there? Anyway, it's somewhere in here in this 18, 19, 21 range, 2021. 20, why, you know, why do you have markings about mixed fabrics and mixed crops and tattoos in your body? Because these were pagan practices of the nations around them, symbolizing worship of these false deities. So false worship of false god in a man-centered and man-created religion. Israel is to forsake all of that because they are true worshipers of the true god. The true creator, not centered upon themselves, but centered upon him. Therefore, they worship the way that he has called in truth and light. Hmm, that's important. That's why you get these laws in 18 against idolatry in 19 and how the community will live. Condemnations of human sacrifice and sins against the family and how the interfamilial relationships work. Notice how many of these... <coughs> Notice how many of these laws have to do with how the family relates to one another. You saw this, saw this with marital laws. You see this with uh, clean cleansing of, of new, uh, new mothers. You'll see this with you don't get to marry your stepdaughter or your stepmother and stuff like that. Why? A protection of the fundamental unit of humanity. Remember, circles of authority. Government has authority. Church has authority. Christian. Family has authority. Fathers, mothers, discipling, training, children, honoring and walking in the path of godliness as laid down by parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. You undermine that, you can undermine everything in society. And if you'd like a case study in that, go look at American history from the last 80 years. What will you see? You'll see the undermining and the degradation of meaning in family. You'll see a destruction of community that follows it, which filters its way up to the nation at large. You want to destroy a nation? You want to destroy a culture? Destroy its families. Conversely, you want to build up a nation? You want to build up a culture? Build up its families. God providing the means by the means for this. 
excuse me, dropping my pen, providing understanding on how these relationships express themselves and demonstrate in the life around them. And right on the heels of that, what do you get? Regulations for the priests, because now that I know your families are taken care of, let's get back to taking care of worship. Let's understand how we offer, what we offer, and how that functions. And then once we know that that is correct, we've got the right sacrifice, we've got the right priest, now we can talk about festivals. We can talk about the corporate worship of the people. When you come to the tabernacle, later to be the temple, why you come, the times of year that you do this in. This is laid out for you in Leviticus 23, the three annual feasts where Israel is to gather communally. To be reminded of what? Notice how much they center. You get Passover, reminding of the redemption of God, the removal of slavery, the purchasing of the people by God. You get to do it at first fruits, Pentecost, because ultimately that is where the first fruits of salvation, the promise and the sealing of the Holy Spirit will come, but also because you're reminded of what? The, not just the Savior and judgment work of God, but you're reminded of the preservation work of God, the preserving work, how he is long-suffering and continues to feed you year after year after year. You also get to come at tabernacles, so you get to be reminded of what? The wandering in the wilderness. Again, the long-suffering of God, the precision in which his, bring him, his bringing the people into the land, his sanctifying them and cleansing this people so that they would come in and take the land that God has laid out. All of these things, seen through the light of who God is and what he has done, reminds Israel of how they're supposed to live going forward. It reminds them that they're supposed to keep these things on the front of their minds, that every aspect of their life, how they raise their families, how they field their crops, how they mend their clothes, and how they relate to their neighbors and their livestock are expressions of who they are as the people of God. Hence, 24. You get the tabernacle. You get judgment against sin. Someone who is not keeping is stoned to death. Why? Because Israel is supposed to be pure. Reminding you and teaching you what? That the precise God will judge all sin. And that only by His grace and walking in His mercy can sin be atoned for. Without that, there is no mercy and there is no, there is no grace. There is only justice and wrath because God will deal with all sin. So you're seeing the pictures of a perfect people of God, which is what eternity is supposed to be. Then you're reminded what? A Sabbath year, jubilee, the redemption of the poor, redemption, I just lost my spot, of the people who are struggling. Why? Why do you get a Sabbath year and then you get a jubilee year? Well, because even the land gets a fresh start. Because Israel gets a fresh start. It's a reminder of the faithfulness and, and uh, salvific work of God. That the, the land, that everything, remember, everything is, a, is an expression of these attributes and understandings of God. So the land that God has given to us will get a rest. Well, how are we going to live when we give the land a rest? You mean that God who is the accomplisher and the one who preserves us will provide for us? Exactly. Why should we care for the poor and the downtrodden and those that are struggling? Because we are the poor and the downtrodden and those that are struggling, and God cares for us. And we seek to manifest that in our lives day by day. And every couple of generations we do what? We restart at the Jubilee. Ancestral lands are returned. Bills of sale are torn up. All of this so that why? The God who is given is the one who is honored. 
It's not about me accumulating all this land and all these riches. It's about me honoring God and protecting my brother and carrying him along because we are God's people. I belong to him and he belongs to me, good, bad, or ugly, and we belong to God. Then you get to 26, the reminders that there's blessings of obedience and there's penalties for disobedience. And then finally, as you finish up this little section, you get to figure out currency and valuations. Why? Because we're going to have to do economy. We're going to have to engage in commerce and deal with one another, but we're going to do it how? According to the standard that God has laid out, because again, everything in life is built upon how we walk in godliness. Everything in life is built upon who God is and what we are doing in response to that. So, see, you can make sense of the law and we can get through it in one episode. Christian. Hopefully this is an encouragement. Is that an in-depth exegesis? No. It's a simple walking through, understanding what is going on in these sections so that we can think through them as Christians. Again, Christian, as you carry this idea forward, understand that every aspect of your living is supposed to be an honoring of God. He has redeemed, he has fulfilled his promises of the law, and he has now called us to walk in holiness, discipling our families, changing our communities by walking in in godliness day by day. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. If you like this stuff, give us a good review. Subscribe, please. Set us on auto-download. It helps kind of spread that. Share with your friends and neighbors. The whole goal of this is that we make sense of these things so that we can can grow in godliness because that's what we desire for our fellow brothers and for our friends and for our family. So that's the plan. If you can Get us along that road. We greatly appreciate it. And until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.